afternoon, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Now to this. Oh no, we have Bubsy Moran and Peter Dunn also on Friday's panel. And a question asked this morning on the RNZ site, what would happen if only voters, not unions or businesses, could donate to political parties. The amount of money raised, millions of dollars, was unprecedented. Now, in June, the Independent Electoral Review panel issued an interim report with a series of recommendations to tighten the rules, ban businesses and organisations like unions from donating, limit the amount a person can give to any one party to $30,000 in each electoral cycle. Final report to be delivered November 30. And on a related issue also raised is whether or not a government department should be giving contracts to lobbying firms, firms that are being hired by the government and so being given a potentially privileged access to power. So Farrah Hancock and Guy Nespina uh, wrote on both of those. Also, um, Dr. Bryce Edwards, who's the director of the Democracy Project at Victoria University, he picked up on this as well in a piece. Dr. Edwards, kia ora. Are you there, Bryce? I am. Can oh. you hear me, Wallace? Yes, hello. Yes, good to have you here, Bryce. Thank you. Now, this RNZ, first up, this RNZ piece that said that New Zealand's approach to political donations is out of step with others, including the US, UK and Australia. Are we just a bit lax comparably regarding political donations? We absolutely are. I think there's always been this uh, national myth that uh, we don't have corruption in New Zealand, we don't have uh, you know, conflicts of interest, that's what happens in you know, countries like the US and you know, developing countries, but we do definitely have some, uh, some challenges here and we do have some wealthy interests that do want to buy political policy. And banning businesses and organisations like unions from donating, I, I can imagine, uh, Bryce, this would affect Labour as much as national. I can't imagine there'd be too much appetite for change here. Yeah, I don't think that ban is likely to happen because, as you suggest, there are the, the vested interests of the main parties that continue to have those uh, those donations. But I think we also have to be careful in banning those donations that we're not just shifting or changing behaviour and we get um, wealthy interests just putting that money that they would have donated to parties into uh I guess campaign groups, you know, third party uh campaigns um mm. that aren't regulated and so you end up having lots of negative campaigning in the electoral cycle. Wow. Uh, like you do in the US. Right. Now, just on this other note too, and you also sort of did a piece on this. Now, so Guy and Espina cites, uh, as one example, as an example, lobbying firm Senate SHJ, who has at various times had clients in the grocery, energy and building sectors, but also worked for the state agency that is regulating those sectors, Appropriate? Not to me, it's not. No, it's, it is completely inappropriate. Uh, the problem is that Senate SHJ um, is a PR and lobbying firm, so it does lots of different uh, work that isn't lobbying and some that is lobbying. And so, yeah, they have clients that they lobby on behalf of, and then they work for government agencies like the Commerce Commission, the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Justice, giving them communications advice. And uh, there's always the risk 
that you know the different arms of that agency sorry of the of senate you know could be helping the clients in their roles and getting information inside those government agencies so there could be big conflicts of interest right it's been on our panel boopsie um hi bryce i was wondering how hard is it to follow the money because pretty much it with nowadays with technology is it hard to follow the money coming in and where it's being spent during a campaign well, it's always in the interests of those spending it and those giving it to be as secret as possible. So the political parties are very opaque and they don't like to you know, give away any information about where they're getting their money or how they're spending it unless they have to. Well, so, of course, we, we do have some rules. Yeah, because when I was on Facebook, I'm quite on Facebook a lot because of my community work, and I noticed certain times there'd be 20 ads coming at me from certain parties and then a break and then a long break. And then you could almost feel when the money came in just before the election by your ads that you were getting targeted with. Yes, so on Facebook and some of the social media platforms, there is a bit more transparency than there used to be, and we've got some various academics that are studying those those things, to get the quantums, to find out who's been spending on what. But I, I still think it's incredibly opaque and, and difficult to get information in general. Thank Let's you. bring in Peter Dunn. Yeah, well, I, hi, Bryce. I, I tend to agree. I think that uh, it's probably a nice idea to say we'll ban corporate and union and, and other related activity political donation. It's, it's not all that realistic. On the other hand, though, just just ponder this point. Barack Obama in 2008 ran a very successful presidential campaign on the back of individual donations, and that was hailed as a breakthrough at the time. You know, He got this groundswell movement. Look at everything Donald Trump does at the moment out of his court cases and various things. All his messages always have a please donate button on the the bottom. So he's doing exactly the same thing, grassroots fundraising. Now, we might find that because of our political views reprehensible, but it's the same thing. So I think that there's no easy answer on the funding front. Uh, And it was the same too with Bernie Sanders. He recalled that $20 campaign and he raised millions of dollars. The one thing thing I would be, and I'd be interested in Bryce's comment on this, the one thing I'm strongly opposed to is any form of state funding for this reason. If you have state funding, you've got to have a political formula. And the formula that's often advanced is how well you did at the last election. So that immediately creates a bias in favour of those who won and didn't you know, do so badly. But it also rules out any new parties from getting funding. So I think a state funding mechanism uh, is just as bad as the sort of situation we've got at the moment. But Bryce, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, look, Peter, you're absolutely right that state funding does have fish hooks in it and that people tend to just see it as an easy answer, a magical way of fixing the problem. And But it does, it exactly does, it does what you, you suggest. It freezes the party system. It gives those that are already in Parliament this huge incumbency mm. protection, basically. And so you, you don't really get new parties coming into Parliament when they're state for them because the other players just can't get the money to compete. Well, I have a comment about like grassroots movements because back in 2008, I had friends that went across the country playing banned live music. And that's a big difference between running ads that are opaque and hidden and are smashing people's social media inboxes. I feel like there's some sort of cap you could have on elections. There are people who are spending money on those kind of campaigns versus people that go door to door and how much that costs and where the cap is. You know, there's some way to control that. There must be a way. Absolutely. I think that is the answer. Um, Ultimately, is we actually need 
mass participation in politics. Mm. We need to, if, if we can, and it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, but we need to you know, somehow go back to the mass membership parties that we used to have well, in New Zealand. We, we have, have caps at the moment on what individual candidates can spend, but we don't yeah. have caps on what parties can spend. Mm. And that, to me, seems to be a huge anomaly in the current system, particularly as it's a party vote-based system. So right. you, you, know, can, you can direct all your funding another way. Now, Bryce, the, I mean, this, is, this, this issue is now getting noticed across the board. For example, the Taxpayers Union, they didn't hold back, saying, quoting, the Groceries Commission has effectively allowed a lobbying firm to infiltrate and potentially manipulate regulatory processes. You know, so that's their view. They've called for an investigation. I mean, is it something that you would possibly support? Oh, absolutely. And I'm seeing a lot of... uh heightened sensitivities about vested interests and lobbying and it's it's not just from the left you're, you're right it's from um, the taxpayers union it's from people on the right that do think we have a problem in New Zealand with our markets and duopolies and lack of competition and people are increasingly wondering to what extent the, the current policy settings have been um, yes somehow influenced by those that benefit i.e. the big players is there, in the meanwhile, uh, an elegant solution at hand? Dr. Edwards, uh, for example, what about, I don't know, if you're a lobbying firm, publicly declare your mm. business clients as they do in mm. Australia? Look, um, I think that's ideal to have more and more transparency, shine a bit more light on uh, the details. And at the moment, the, there's no rules at all for um, lobbyists and uh, registering or declaring who their clients are. Um, but certainly if they're getting government contracts, like we're talking about here with Senate H. Jay, um, having contracts with Commerce Commission, Ministry of Justice, Health, etc. In that case, they definitely should be having to declare who their uh, their clients, their business um, customers are. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah, Dr. Edwards, kia ora. Thank you again for your time. That's uh, Bryce Edwards there, uh, the Director of the Democracy Project. It is interesting too, isn't it, uh, Peter, because fundamentally this issue here, uh, and very good work by Farrah Hancock and Guy Nesbitt on RNZ, you can go and check it out, it strikes at the heart of of the mechanism how the wheels of a democracy uh, are oiled. Absolutely. Look, I've got very little tolerance for lobbyists. I think they're basically leeches on the system. Oh, I that's think, a bit strong, isn't it? Peter? I think Goodness we do need to have. Me. I think we do need to have firmer controls, both in terms of a register of who they're lobbying. Uh, they don't. Their preferential access to Parliament's been removed. That that's good. I think we also need to have stand down periods for senior public servants mm. and former ministers who sort of opt out of the the political system and then straight into lobbying. And I'll give you an example. This week, a Wellington lobbying firm announced that it had replaced a number of its senior staff who were known to have Labour links, and that's with people now because there's a change of government with national links. That, and they've brought in some known figures accordingly. That, to me, I find extremely uncomfortable and exactly the sort of manipulation of the system that you're talking about. And I think we've got to really stamp down on that. 18 past four with us, Boopsie Moran and Peter Dunn on today's panel, RNZ National. Yesterday, Wellington City Council voted to sell its 34% stake in Wellington International Airport. It comes as part of the council's proposed 2024-34 to long-term plan to be consulted on with the public before a vinyl 
final vote next June. Wellington Mayor Tori Farno told Morning Report today that she now backs the proposal now that the money from the sale could be used to set up a green investment fund and not paying down debt. Well, we thought... Who knows about Wellington uh, issues? None other than Wellington, Wellingtonian and columnist Dave Armstrong. Dave, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace, how are you? Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on as always, Dave. Now, Wellington, selling off the family silver. Are things that bad in your city, Dave? Well, no, this, is a, this is an interesting one. Um, I don't think they are that bad, and... You've got to be a little bit careful saying we're selling off the silver because as it stands, firstly, it's been consulted. So they've just said, we'll go yeah. to consultation on this. When they wanted to sell parts of the library or, or privatise or whatever you like to call it, they got such a reaction of negativity. You even got people uh, like Nicola Young, who was the, the independent councillor, changing their vote on it. Uh, I think Laurie Foon changed the vote. So it's not a done deal. Um, but, you know, it's got some opposition from, from both... Ca- the Labour councillors have all come out absolutely against it and basically says it is selling the silver. Uh, Tory Farnley pointed out that the, the money would go to a resilience fund uh, that would be there to help us in, you know, things like earthquakes. It would be an easier way to access the money. Yeah. So I suppose an analogy is, is you, you don't have it in the mortgage, you have it in the household account. So that you can go <laughs> but, of course, if you are looking to privatise or if you are looking... To you know, oops, you 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 spent more money on on restoration, restoring the town hall than you mean. <laughs> then you, even though she says there'll be protections, I'd love to know what they were, <laughs> what they are. You know, is it an yeah. eight digit? Pin number, I don't know. Yeah, no, interesting. Well, let's just jump straight into Peter first because this is your city too, Peter. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that the the, uh, the mayor's change of heart is interesting. Um, I agree oh, with her. To, I, I agree with her up to a point that that, that if, if the proceeds from the share sale are going to be used for specific purposes rather than debt repayment, then that's a, a more persuasive argument. I think the question then becomes, and really, I think this is what Dave was alluding to, what those more specific purposes might be. But, I, but and, and you're right too, this is only at the consultation phase, so we're a long way from saying there's yeah. a definite decision on this. But I think the bigger question uh, as a ratepayer that I've got is the whole, we've had a lot of revelations over the last few weeks about the financial state of the council. It's not clear what exactly it is. Are we as, in, in such a bad state as some suggest or is the position a little bit better? And I think what we need to see is a, lo- a clear long-term, not just a plan, but a long-term a report on what the council's financial obligations and implications of those are for the future. Because at the moment, if you look at, our ageing water infrastructure, you look at, uh, we've talked about heritage buildings, you look at so many other things around the city, it just seems to be coming to the point where we're being overwhelmed by problems and there aren't too many solutions. Hey, stay there, Dave. Let's bring uh, uh, Boopsy in as well and you can respond to both. I have a question that I'm not sure if you guys can answer or the panel people out there listening. What about sea level rise in airports? Because I always wonder when I land into these airports, they're right on the water's edge. So sure. as an investment, is it a smart investment if the water is going to eventually go higher? Does anyone know about the state okay. of that runway? That, that's a good question. Yes, sea level rise is an issue. And in, I think I'm right on this. I'm no geologist, but we're not only dealing with sea level rise, we're dealing with um, the way the island is actually moving. Mm. Mm. Uh, so it's sort of a double dip. Um, it's it's an issue, and there was a, a controversy about who paid for the sea wall that they yeah. recently, and and um, uh, Tamitha Paul actually w- managed to 
oppose that and get the council not to pay uh, essentially the airport uh, infrastructure and the council uh, to, to, for that. So, I mean, it's, yes, it's, it's an issue too. Yeah, we're talking to Dave Armstrong here, uh, Wellington Issues, and uh, the Wellington Mayor Tori Fano saying that she now backs this proposal because the the other issue is, I mean, just looking around at the, uh, I guess the financial issues of what stays on the table uh, over and above this particular uh, selling of the airport. What do you got here? Uh, agreeing to unanimously scrap the $230 million for repairs for the uh, Tenarco Civic Square and the City to Sea Bridge. You've got the $100 million plus of funding for cycleways and footpaths scrapped. There's a lot going on financially in your fair city, isn't there, Dave? Yes, and, and, and oh, look, there's an enormous... And, and it's, I, I agree with what Peter's saying. And, and what's interesting is that I thought today, or maybe yesterday was going to be the day where a lot of financial stuff was to be revealed. But it, it mm. does not... There's, there's not sort of an overall balance sheet where you go, oh, we're here. And so there's mm. been accusations of crises. There's been denials of crises. And, you know, I think Wellingtonians are quite grown-up people. We can handle debt. We can handle uh, a balance sheet that looks quite daunting if we, you know, if we can discuss it. And what I would say, too, that not many people have reported on, yesterday's meeting was not rancorous. It was not what we had three years ago. Um, there weren't personality clashes. It was actually quite um, amicable from you know from all sides. Mm. So I, I do think uh, Wellington can can sort it out. But yeah, and look, uh, the cycle lanes got got chopped down. Uh, uh, well, some funding got quite significant funding got cut. But even cyclists were saying, well, we can we can deal with that. And I must say that one thing about council spending that's becoming very apparent. It's sort of the rolls royceization of spending. You ask for a bus shelter and you get mm. a fortress. Mm. And, and the council, they ask engineers and they ask people and they say, oh, this is going to cost so many million. Well, that's the Rolls-Royce version. But what about the no-frills sort of Suzuki Swift version? Yeah. <laughs> and and a, lot of, a lot of this is, is absolutely like if we make the bridge really top-level earthquake resistant, um, you know, what, what's it going to be? And so I think what Wellington needs to do is is look at uh, good things but cheap things. Nice and not one. Be hmm. So Rolls Royce about it. Well, well we the ha- bottom line is, yeah. of course, the ratepayers pay for this, and in, that, at a certain point, they're going to say if their rates are going up eight to ten percent every time, you know, what value for money am I getting? And we're not at that point yet, but I think it's not too far away. Oh, it's such a great city, Dave. It's such a great city. I'm a big fan. I mean, there are small ways. There are small things you could do. For example, enclose the bucket fountain and charge to see it. See, there you go, Dave. Why don't you take that to the council? Wallace, the trouble with what you're saying is there will be a council officer out there taking notes who will do it. (laughs) Just remember, this whole... This whole airport thing did not come. We didn't. We didn't meet, debate it at, at the debates. We didn't talk about it. It, mm. it got failed. It got pushed up by the council officers two years ago. They failed. It got uh, voted down, and now it's come again. And so this is what does happen. We mm. don't always have issues, you know, that come from us. They are foisted upon us by council officers. Kia ora, Dave. Nice to have you on the programme. Uh, that's uh, Dave Great. Armstrong there, Wellingtonian, and uh, columnist. I, I, I don't know, what do you think, uh, Wellingtonians? Is that a good idea? I think it's a great idea, isn't it? You close the bucket hmm. thousand and charge $5. You would make, what, a million a year? That's something, isn't it? Uh, 26 past... A drop in the bucket for all counts. But I'm ching! Fast. Uh, 26 past four now. 
Yesterday, uh, returning to Sally Winley's I've Been Thinking, she extolled the virtues of heritage cookbooks, by which I mean the gems that you find. Do you have grandmother's cookbooks stored away? And what's in it? Is it tongue? Is it fruitcake? Uh, uh, Sally mentioned a little clipping that she had. What was Keith Holyoke's favourite cake? It was a fruitcake. Anyway, with us now, who has a rather unique recipe, is Francis in Manawatu. Welcome, Francis. Thank you, Wallace. Oh, lovely to have you on. I <laughs> am reading here. It's a mad recipe. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, let's get straight into it. You've got the Women's Mirror recipe book. Your mum used it to make lots of things, including various drippings and splodges. What do you have in front of us? I've got the little brain pies. Uh, what? Little brain pies? Yes, yes. Sheep's brains. Have you eaten it? Sounds gross. Looks doesn't doesn't look good. In a, in a nut- know, there's no colour to it. Really. No, I can imagine. <laughs> um, this was a, this was of a time too, um, Francis, when some of that some parts of the animal were used quite often, weren't they? Like tongue, like brains, right? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean. This book would be near enough to 100 years old. Wow. But I actually feed my daughter's brains. What's and that? And I'm not, not 100 years. What makes not it taste delicious? Years. What's the secret ingredient to make the brains taste delicious? Well, when I read the recipe today, I would add something like rosemary or parsley with it. But naturally, they're just Short pastry, of course, all of this is homemade. Yes. Short pastry. Cook the brains in milk and then add pepper and salt to taste. Add an, add a hard-boiled egg because that will add a bit more protein and mash it all up together and basically that's it. And did your children look forward to that pie? Were they excited when um, they... Not really. My goodness. Well, Francis... <laughs> Well, Francis, if any, it, was, it was the right price. <laughs> yes. If, if any, exactly, the right price. If any panellist uh, uh, would have eaten brains, uh, it would have been Peter Dunn. Uh, uh, no, no, it wouldn't have been. I have. <laughs> uh, what, you've eaten no. br- Well, there's a soup in Mexico, Caldo del Borrego, which is during Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, and it's parts of the sheep soup. And you have to, and you, it's a big thing on that day, Day of the Dead, every villager. So you all the parts intestine. Amazing. Yeah, what's it called again? Yeah. Caldo de Borrego, parts of the sheep. Hmm. I guess it's a reminder, isn't it, Francis, that um trends and cooking trends, they change, don't they? Where we once ate uh tripe and tongue, you know, it's just something else. It might come round again. Mm. Well look, maybe I I I would not cook brains today because you're not too sure kind of what stuff is carried in the brain yes. of the animals. Yep. Mm. And know, I, yeah. I wouldn't feed my children brains today. But nothing wrong with a good meal of tongue. Absolutely. Yes. No, no. A, a slice of tongue, cold tongue, 
coleslaw potatoes. No, I, I, oh, You've got it. I grew up in the You've 70s. Don't you worry about that, Francis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lovely, lovely to have you on, and thank you for the suggestion. Thank you. Uh, so that's Little Brain Pies from a 20s cookbook. So you line some tins with short pastry, wash and skin two sheep's brains, cook in enough milk to cover, add pepper and salt to taste, have a hard-boiled egg cut fine, beat the brains with a fork, add the egg and liquid that the brains were cooked in, thicken it with a teaspoon of corn flour, fill the patty tins with the brains. Gosh, yeah, it's hard to read, isn't it, really? But no. Uh, it's the right price. It's the right price, absolutely. Have you eaten brain? Text me 2101. We are with Peter Dunn uh, and Bipsy Moran very shortly. Our Power Battle for our Power Battle Friday.